On December 23, 2021, 30-year-old Angelo Quinto was in the midst of a mental health crisis. When he began acting erratically, his sister Bella called 911 for help. Officers arrived on the scene, and after handcuffing him, one officer knelt on his neck for almost five minutes while another restrained his legs. Paramedics took him to a nearby hospital, where he passed away three days later in an intensive care unit. Yesterday, Wednesday, June 23rd, marks the six-month anniversary of the horrific incident, which took place in Antioch, California. Following Angelo's death, his family filed a wrongful death claim resulting in death by asphyxiation, but police have denied using excessive force. The claim stated, quote, At no time while being restrained did Mr. Quinto resist physically or verbally. After being restrained for almost five minutes, Mr. Quinto became lifeless, end quote. In the wake of Angelo's death, his family has pushed for a series of police reforms, both locally in Antioch and on a statewide level. On June 2nd, the California Assembly passed a bill called the Angelo Quinto Act of 2021, which bans law enforcement from strangulation tactics that cause asphyxia. Positional asphyxia includes, quote, knee-to-neck restraint, which drew national attention due to being the cause of death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020. In reference to the Angelo Quinto Act, otherwise known as AB 490, bill author Assemblymember Mike A. Gibson said, quote, the circumstances of Angelo Quinto's death are a stark parallel to George Floyd's, which both exposed loopholes in use of force policies, end quote. AB 490 will now be heard in the state Senate. To learn more about Angelo and his family's fight for justice, I spoke with his aunt, Deanna Collins Puente. Deanna serves as the Director of Community Affairs, Student Development, and Leadership for Associated Students at UCSB. Deanna, thank you so much for joining me today. I wanted to say I am so sorry for your loss, and I wanted to thank you for sharing such a personal story with our listeners here on KCSB. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really do appreciate uh, the, the, the time and the interest um, in what's happened with Angelo. Um, it has been, you know, of course, really, really a challenging time, but one of the things that has made it uh, a little bit more bearable is knowing that there's a whole community of folks that are interested not only, of course, in what's happened uh, with Angelo, but just in how we continue to seek justice for all of our communities. And so I'm really grateful to be able to be here as part of that bigger conversation as well. So before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who Angelo was as a person. How might you describe him to someone who never met him? You know, um, one of my fondest memories with Angelo, even when he was little, was um, really being able to engage him in almost any topic and conversation. And his level of curiosity about the world and his fascination with things, um, he would, you know, we would get into some really in-depth conversations about anything. And then at one point, he would kind of just crack a big smile um, and give that that look like he's just really enjoying, you know, where we're going. And he would find that a, a reason to laugh in the middle of, of any of those conversations. And, and just seeing that smile was such a such a warm part of who he was. Um, Angelo um, was really very beloved um, son, brother, friend. He was an artist. He was a philosopher. He was a uh, he loved to fish. Um, he was very ambitious and really always kind of wanted to explore and continue to ask the questions why to really kind of figure out what was happening um, in the world. Um, he was 30 years old um, when he was killed. Um, he lived in uh, the city of Antioch, where he had actually just moved 
the family had just moved there uh, three months before this incident happened. So before that, uh, he lived in, he grew up in the Bay Area in, in Berkeley, mostly went to school in Berkeley. Um, he has a younger brother and a younger sister um, that, um, of course, now, you know, now still live in Berkeley. And they, him and his younger brother uh, came from the Philippines um, when they were little. Um, and so uh, that's a little bit about him. You know, he was just um, a very beloved, very supportive person, someone that people really found a lot of um, uh, wanting to be near him and wanting to ask him uh, his opinion on things and wanting to get his support on whatever it was that people were were dealing with. He was always a really, really good shoulder uh, to lean on. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask if you're comfortable doing so. If you could describe the conditions surrounding Angelo's death for our listeners, what happened that day six months ago? Of course. So on the night of December 23rd, 2020, at about 11 p.m., uh, Angelo was experiencing a mental health crisis while he was at home with his sister and his mom. He was experiencing extreme paranoia, and as his paranoia was exacerbated, um, his sister finally called 911 uh, for help. Um, when the Antioch police arrived at the family's home that night, Angelo had calmed down. He was actually um, in an embrace, in a bear hug that, uh, with his mom uh, on the floor of her bed bedroom. He had no weapons, he was not violent, and he had a documented history of mental illness. But when the police arrived uh, and entered the room without speaking to Angelo, the Antioch police officers took him from his mother's arms and put him face down on the floor. Angelo was not resisting, uh, and what he said was, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. One officer crossed and folded Angelo's legs, pinning them against his back, and another officer handcuffed him and placed his knee on the back of Angelo's neck. At the end of the hall, his sister overheard officers saying something akin to, this is what we do to calm them down. For four and a half minutes, uh, at least, uh, they continued to hold him in this restraint. Um, for four and a half minutes of the restraint, he was completely unresponsive. Um, the officers actually took turns and keeping a knee on his neck during that time and did not respond to the fact that he was no longer being responsive. Finally, at one point, they turned him around and he was no longer breathing. Um, his heart had stopped. Um, after taking him his handcuffs off and placing him on a gurney in the hallway, the medical team that had arrived began chest compressions um, and he never became responsive again. Um, he was then put into a coma in the hospital um, and died officially um, three days later. Uh, during that time, um, the family was taken to the police station, uh, his sister and his, um, and his mom, and they were questioned for four hours. During that time, they were denied um, access to any official information about Angelo's condition and were actually told that he was okay uh, when, the, when um, the police department knew differently. Uh, they did not allow them to even communicate um, with the hospital and told the doctors not to communicate with the family about what was happening. And at the same time, for more than eight hours, um, the family's home was searched under a felony search warrant um, by the Antioch Police Department, even though there was no crime committed and there was no um, nothing that indicated that there was any reason for a felony search warrant to be um, uh, issued in this case. 
sadly, that really is not even the end of that conversation because subsequent to that, the family continued to be denied access to Angelo's medical records, including the toxicology report, uh, including fluid and tissue samples so that we could have an independent autopsy done and really any information uh, from them about any of the things that were transpiring um, in the case. Um, and now fast forward uh, to this Wednesday of this week will be the six month anniversary um, of that tragic day on December 23rd. Um, and six months later, the family still doesn't have um, a lot of critical information about what happened on that day and what happened in the subsequent days, weeks, and months afterwards. Um, there are still supposedly a number of investigations underway, um, but we still have no information uh, or any conclusion from, from any of those um, investigations. And so we are finding that we have to continue to ask the questions um, and demand that the um, Antioch Police Department, that the city of Antioch, that the district attorney's office, and that the coroner and sheriff's office all break the wall of silence uh, around Angelo's case and other cases of police violence in Antioch, California. And as you mentioned, Angelo was having a mental health crisis when his sister called 911. Do you feel the interaction would have played out differently if a mental health professional accompanied police officers who were responding to the 911 call? Would someone more experienced in mental health have been able to support Angelo in a more humane way? Absolutely. There is no question. And even on that night, my niece asked them, is this the right number to call? Because she was looking to get help, not necessarily the police to show up. She knew that he was having a mental health crisis. And it's one of the reasons why we are really uh, have been pushing at the state level and also at the local level in Antioch to develop mental health crisis response teams that can be deployed, in my mind, ideally independently from the police officers so that they are the first ones to arrive on scene and to actually de-escalate a situation. There is nothing in this case that should have caused the police to escalate that situation um, instead of helping to address what was actually happening uh, to Angelo and to support um, the family in providing him with the help that he needed. Um, so I would say that I'm very happy to see there's a very strong movement and support that people are recognizing that mental health support is critical and that um, the police are not the ones to do it. I, I would even say that um, most law enforcement folks that I know, um, ab if not all, I would actually say every single police officer I've ever spoken with agrees with that as well, that they should not be the ones uh, showing up to provide that kind of specialized mental health support. Um, that's not what they're trained really to do. And so it's not fair and it's not a good outcome for anybody in our community uh, when that is what happens. Earlier this month, the California State Assembly passed the Angelo Quinto Act of 2021. What is the act and what does it seek to prevent? Yes, yeah, so the Angelo Quinto Act of 2021 is known currently as Assembly Bill 490. It just passed the Assembly floor and now it's going on to the Senate. What that bill does is it, it bans across California the use of uh, positional asphyxia, which is any restraint that can cause asphyxia. Um, that includes the knee to neck restraint. Um, this is actually, um, um, this bill, uh, this provision was actually included in a bill a year ago, a bill that was intended to address uh, what happened in the case of George Floyd. And of course, as, as you might know, George Floyd um, had the same, um, the same method used on him in terms of the knee to neck restraint. Um, that bill ended up having this provision taken out at the last moment before it was passed. And so as we were 
you know, seeing what was happening in Angelo's case, um, we really had a lot of questions about whether or not that was currently banned. Um, and it seemed like there were a lot of loopholes and a lot of gray area um, with what is being allowed, whether it's the carotid restraint, uh, the chokehold, a lot of kind of different ways in which people are defining uh, different restraints. And so when we came back and started speaking with the assembly member um, uh, who originally uh, authored the bill, uh, this was assembly member Bonta, who's now the attorney general, uh, we realized that it was really important and timely to uh, put that provision uh, back into um, uh, into an assembly bill and hopefully into law um, to to amend that part of the um, of the law. Um, and, and like I said, this is again would affect all um, uh, all uses of that restraint statewide. Uh, we are very hopeful. We're, we're in a short a time frame right now for that to be passed through the Senate. And so really also encouraging folks, I'll make a plug for encouraging folks to reach out to their uh, elected officials, uh, state elected officials, and to encourage them uh, to support the passage um, of AB 490. And beyond banning strangulation restraint tactics, such as what the Angelo Quinto Act is seeking to do, what other police reforms has your family been pushing for in the wake of Angelo's death? Well, at the state level, um, it is the family of Miles Hall, um, who now have the Miles Hall Foundation. They are the ones that have really been leading the push for AB 988. And that is a bill, um, there is already coming down uh, from um, the, the federal level, uh, a requirement to establish a 988 um, suicide crisis prevention hotline. Um, and so what this bill would do would be to not, uh, to to um, use that newly created number to establish the hotline, but to also establish mental health crisis response teams um, that would be able to be deployed throughout California. That's huge, um, huge uh, legislation that also just passed the assembly um, over this last two weeks. And that will also be going forward uh, in the Senate. Um, so that's a huge one. Um, we are also supporting a number of other bills that the Black uh, caucus, uh, the state black caucus has been pushing. I think there are about 12 different crime reform bills coming through um, this year in this in the um, California Assembly. And a lot of them are really very important um, bills uh, in terms of not just small reforms, but but very basic, but very, very needed uh, reforms in terms of, um, you know, um, uh, the expectations of how police officers will respond, um, the use of force, uh, what the requirements are for them to be able to be um, disqualified from continuing to be police officers, um, just a number of different things in that regard. At the local level in Antioch, we have also been pushing um, for a number of different reforms. We're very fortunate that the uh, mayor that was elected in November um, actually came in on a police reform platform. Um, and a number of the city council members are also very progressive. So we pushed there also for the mental health um, crisis response. Uh, they have agreed to that. They have moved that forward to developing a, um, an RFP or a contract to be able to bring in a consultant to develop a mental health crisis response program that is specific for Antioch. Uh, we have also moved for them to um, fund uh, uh, cameras for body cameras as well as uh, car dash cameras. 
Um, we're pushing for them to immediately ban the knee to neck restraint in Antioch. We don't feel like that needs to wait for anything and certainly not wait for the state level changes to happen because those would not be implemented until January. So we wanna see the, the, the ban to, knee, to the knee to neck restraint and to positional asphyxia happen immediately. Um, and uh, we have also supported a number of the other things, including no additional militarization of the Antioch Police Department, new training paradigms, um, new ways to make sure that uh, officers who are under investigation would not be considered for a position uh, at the Antioch Police Department, um, a number of other reforms that have come in um, that were not part of our initial three um, uh, calls to action, but are certainly things that we have been both pushing and supporting um, to happen um, in Antioch. Um, so I feel like it's been some tremendous uh, change. Of course, we still have a very long way to go. Um, it's one thing to kind of pass these reforms. It's another thing to actually make sure that they are being put into place with the right policies and the procedures in place so that they don't become, for example, the body and dash cameras. We don't want them to end up being used against our communities, right, by the way in which they're handled or by not having a transparent um, process for how that information gets shared. So it's still a lot of work to do, but definitely we've been able to make some, some things happen. And it's not... I want to say it's it's not just because this happened to Angelo. The Antioch local organizers have been working on these efforts for many, many years. What happened to Angelo is not unique in Antioch. Um, what we're doing at the state level has been building off of the efforts of so many different families, organizations, and communities who've been doing this work. Um, I don't think that we, we would be able to do any of this uh, the way that it's happened if it wasn't because of all of the tremendous work that folks have been doing for so long. And while statewide and national advocacy on structural issues like police brutality are obviously extremely important, I was also wondering if you wanted to speak on the power and importance of advocating locally, such as the work your family has been doing to push for reform within the Antioch Police Department. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, as, as someone has said, you know, uh, all politics is local, right? And our ability to be invested in our communities, and not only in the sense of civic engagement, right, of participating in the different meetings or showing our opinion, but really also building the alternatives in our communities. Um, and in order for us to do that, we really do have to be thinking about um, that, that local impact. At the same time, recognizing that some of the things that we are addressing, for example, in Antioch, it is not just Antioch residents that are impacted by police violence, right? It can be anybody, even a visitor in Antioch that can, that can end up being impacted. That any act of injustice um, is a concern for all of us, no matter where we live. Also that a third of most uh, local city budgets actually come from state and federal funds. So literally all of us as California taxpayers or as US taxpayers actually have a financial investment in all of our local communities. And law enforcement at the local level is responsible by statute, by law to state and federal law enforcement agencies. So there's a connection between all of these things. And, and some people would prefer that nobody outside of Antioch came and gave an opinion about what's happening in Antioch because they would like to imagine that we are outsiders in that conversation. Um, as I have said at the city council meetings, Angelo was a resident of Antioch, um, but he was killed. And so now we are his voice. Whether we live in Antioch or not, we are his voice. 
So I, I think it's a it's a many layered kind of response, you know, to to your question, um, but not to reduce or diminish at all the importance of us really focusing at our local community level on what are the things that need to happen. We are actually very very powerful uh, in making change happen at the local level. I think very often, you know, um, civic engagement is not actually a very easy thing to do. Um, even if you're calling in for a meeting to provide public comment, it can be very challenging for folks um, to do that, whether it's because it's not set up very well, the technology, or because it's uh, conflicting times, or it's not clear how to be part of that process. And so I think committing to what we can do in our local communities becomes even more important because we know that so many other people actually have a really hard time um, accessing the, um, the, the infrastructure to be able to be part of that process um, at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level. And this incident also sheds light on a long history of police violence against Asian Americans. During a time when anti-Asian attacks and sentiments are on the rise, how might the treatment of Angelo, who, as you mentioned, was born in the Philippines, say about racial prejudice within policing? Well, I mean, I think it ties in, of course, to that longer history of, of policing light and what is the roots of policing in this country? Um, how has it been racialized? Um, I think that um, it has been an important conversation um, that I have seen in, within the Filipino community and the uh, Asian and uh, API community in the US about really having to grapple with what that means. And, and as you said, you know, in, the, in light of you know, a lot of the violence and, and hate that we're seeing um, throughout the country, um, it really does, I think, create an opportunity for this dialogue to happen in a lot of different spaces. Uh, I think that families are talking to each other about what this means because, you know, some, I think as with so many of these um, incidents where somebody is taken um, from our lives in this way, I think it is really always difficult for people to understand how it could happen, you know, and I think people always think it's going to happen to somebody else. Um, it's not going to happen to us. And that moment when you realize that this, you know, this son of ours also looks like somebody else's son, also looks like somebody else's cousin, also um, reminds them of someone else that struggled with mental health issues. Um, I think that all those things are in some way, um, you know, hopefully that that's some of what this produces is the ability for people to talk with each other more and to really understand that this is a systemic issue that all of our communities have to be focusing on. And of course, it looks different in different communities. We have different historical context um, for it. And we have to really see how we are standing in solidarity with each other, how we're actually you know, um, uh, going to support everybody's efforts uh, for more just and healthy communities. And unfortunately, your family is not alone and that you have lost a loved one through police violence. Are you and your family in touch with other families who have lost loved ones in a similar manner? And if so, has this provided any emotional support or solace to you? Oh, I have to tell you that it's been amazing the amount of support from other families. Um, you know, when very soon after all of this happened and we're getting ready to do the press conference to just talk about what was happening, um, I said that this is one of those clubs that you never want to belong to, that we're now part of this club of families. And it is a club that we want to make sure that nobody else ever joins either, you know. Um, but having said that, you know, the outpouring of support 
um, has been tremendous. We are regularly right now in communication and, and, and in community with many other families in the Bay Area. Um, um, they have shown up time and time again with not only um, um, showing up in support of whatever action we're doing, um, but also have been showing up in providing so many additional resources for us, you know, so many tools, whether it's, you know, tools for mental health, whether it's trying to help navigate and understand what the systems look like, whether it's trying to connect with other families, whether it's just creating safe spaces, you know, for all of us to be able to be, uh, to be in. Um, one of the, the families that has been doing tremendous work with other families is actually the family of Oscar Grant. Um, so Uncle Bobby um, and, um, um, and Reverend Wanda Johnson have been really spearheading um, the effort of pulling together a lot of families on an ongoing basis. And so, for example, um, at the end of September, uh, we will be going down to San Diego uh, to a gathering of 300 families um, that have been um, impacted by police violence. And when I heard that number 300, it just, it gave me chills. And to know that that's just scratching the surface, you know. Um, and so there is so much that is happening with that. It, it does give us, you know, like I said, it, it's, it's, I don't know how you talk about what feels better because you're kind of going through also experiencing somebody else's tragedy and knowing their pain. And that's, that's terrible. Um, but also knowing that there are people that have um, a similar understanding of what the turbulence and the, and the, you know, um, the, the grief that you're experiencing, I do think that there is a lot to be said for finding comfort and finding support with each other. Um, and I'm just, you know, we've also have had new families. There are more uh, young men in particular that have been killed since Angelo and those families are coming into this fold. And so we're also experiencing how to give them support and how to tap them into the very essential things that they need. And just knowing that families are in all different places with this, you know, both how they respond, what they need, what they know about what's available to them. It's a huge um, realm of, of this effort is to try to, to try to find a way to keep holding space for everybody. And what can the average person do to support the efforts of your family and other families who have lost loved ones due to forceful tactics by law enforcement? You know, um, I think that tapping in to their local communities is definitely huge because this is happening in all of our communities. There's always work to be done on that level. Um, for my family in particular, um, we are very active on the Justice for Angelo Quinto um, on our social media, so Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we also have a website that we're developing right now to provide more information for folks that don't use social media so much. Um, but on those uh, three platforms, um, we are providing updates very regularly. So right now, we are attending city council meetings every second and fourth Tuesday of the month, demanding the changes that need to happen at the city council. We are showing up at each of the Senate um, committee hearings and, and providing letters of support um, for AB 490, as well as for some of the other bills that are moving through. Um, and so we definitely encourage folks to stay tuned um, through our social media or to reach out to us uh, directly. Uh, we have a, the email is um, justiceforangeloquinto um, at gmail.com. 
Um, so those are some of the ways to, to stay connected, um, uh, both at the local level and at the statewide level. And is there anything else you wanted to add, either from a personal standpoint or on behalf of Angelo? Well, I would just say that this um, that this week, as I mentioned before, is the six month anniversary um, of um, of the incident. Um, we are going to be finally um, um, taking his ashes to the cemetery and um, uh, inuring him at that time. Um, and also really, again, casting the spotlight on why is it that six months later, you know, we're just now able to, um, you know, uh, lay his ashes to rest. We still don't have answers about the cause of death. We still don't have um, answers about any anything. And so really wanting to just, um, just note that we are far from done uh, with this work and really want to keep encouraging folks to to stay with us, you know, to and, and thanking everyone who's been walking with us through this through this journey. So I think that, yeah, that's that's really just just it. We're we're still in it and um, uh, we're hoping that there will be more development soon and that we'll start to get more answers soon. Well, Dana, thank you again so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. We really appreciate you sharing such a personal and important story with our listeners here in KCSB. Thank you so much, Ashley, and, and thank you to KCSB. Thank you to Deanna Puente Collins for sharing Angelo's story with me and graciously opening up about her family's experience on KCSB. For more information about Angelo and the Justice for Angelo Quinto, Justice for All Coalition, head to justiceforangelo.caard.co or facebook.com slash justice for Angelo Quinto. With KCSB News, I'm Ashley Rush.